Welcome, welcome, welcome to the History of the Holocaust podcast. I'm Mr. Hall. Now, today, we're going to be talking about Chapter 2. So there's a couple of things I would expect you to have some background on, some things we've already talked about in class, but for those of you who are out of class, you might want to do a little bit of research about this. So where we're going to start in history is we're really going to start to look at the, uh, we're going to begin right at the end of the Middle Ages and work our way up to kind of right before the World Wars. We're trying to see how the relationship between Jews and non-Jews within European history began to change over that like three or four hundred year time span between the 1500s and the late 1800s. So to get started, you know, if you're not real familiar with medieval history um, or with the effects of the Industrial Revolution or so on, you might want to go and give yourself a refresher. Also about the in, the concept of the period of enlightenment. Uh, I'm going to go ahead and just assume you guys know those things. So if you need help with that, you might want to pause here, do a little bit of your own research or ask me some questions before you keep going. But if you're ready to go, um, we are going to jump right into the first concept. And that first concept being this idea of enlightenment. So really around the time period of the 1700s, right at the end of the um, Renaissance, you know, just after the Middle Ages, we begin this concept of enlightenment uh, that people come to the conclusion that the monarchies aren't anything special, that there's no such thing as divine right, that they begin to argue the certain amount of equality for people. Now, we also we always have to remember who this enlightenment concept is truly about. Who are the people um, per pushing these ideas of enlightenment? You know, the, the George Washingtons of the world and Thomas Jefferson's and so on. Well, they're white property-owning males. And for most of the concepts of enlightenment, the benefactors are going to be white property-owning males. Uh, they might not have been the lords and ladies of the time or the kings and queens, but more white property-owning Christian males are going to get more political and legal rights. But other minority groups are going to kind of get lost in that. As some people are arguing that we're all equal, there's always kind of those minority groups with their hand up in the back, but hey, what about us? Uh, and unfortunately, the Jews are going to kind of be swept up in that, and it's going to be a bit of back and forth. Now, another big thing that we see happening at this time is the Industrial Revolution forcing populations to move around. As populations move around, Jewish communities within Europe are now coming into more contact with non-Jewish communities. They're being forced into contact socially as well as in the workplace. Now, instead of having a Jewish carpentry shop and a German carpentry shop, um, both carpentry shops have shut down, a factory has opened up, and everybody working in both of those shops is now working in that one single factory. So they're coming into more physical contact with each other and is causing more confrontation to happen. Uh, it's not as though the differences were not, you know, the differences were there beforehand. It's just now they're actually coming to light because the people are being truly exposed to each other. So this brings us then into the discussion of emancipation. And what does it mean by emancipation? During this age of enlightenment, some people are arguing for more emancipation or for more acceptance into society. There's three forms of emancipation, political, legal, and social. Legal emancipation is it's no longer legally justifiable to discriminate against one group or another. 
you know, the concept of uh, this is a black water fountain and a white water fountain, those words black and white are removed from the law. So that there is a certain amount of legal uh, space there for groups to begin to come together. Political emancipation would be groups, uh, minority groups gaining the right to vote, gaining access to the ability to vote, but also holding political office and exercising political power. And then finally, social emancipation is accepting those groups into your social sphere, becoming friends with them, adopting portions of their culture, and so on. So we can see how emancipation can look very different from one group to the other. And when we're then looking at across the entire map of Europe, we see more emancipation happening the further west in Europe that you go. Eastern Europe is still going to remain very, um, very separated. Eastern Europe are still going to have a lot of harsh practices against the Jews, while in Western Europe, there's still a little bit more of emancipation. Now, when I say emancipation in Western Europe, I mean more legal emancipation, some minor examples of political emancipation. Now, it's not perfect, complete emancipation, but it's something. And when you then look at how do the Germans view emancipation to how do the Jews view emancipation, or excuse me, how do the Jews and the non-Jews view it differently, your book has a great quote on uh, page 36 that I'm going to read from. For many non-Jews, the abolition of legal constrictions would give the Jews an opportunity to become members of the new nation, French or German or Italian, etc., or state. In so doing, they would shed their reprehensible habits, that is, their religious traditions, and in time disappear as a distinguishable group through the process of assimilation. Now, this quote specifically is talking about, you know, how the concept of really that the non-Jews um, view emancipation as, well, we wrote it, you have access to this, the fact that you are not utilizing it properly is your own fault. Where the Jews are kind of like just having it in writing, just having the legal ability doesn't guarantee anything. It also has to be put into practice. Now, there must be certain aspects of social and political emancipation if you're going to have legal emancipation practiced properly. If there's not support for the law that is written, it's not going to be enforced. And that's sort of what the Jews are getting at during this debate about how much are they going to be accepted into society. Uh, the non-Jews view giving them voting rights uh, by taking away taxes, specific taxes on the Jews or other legal restrictions, that that's emancipation. The Jews see emancipation, like any other minority group, as complete acceptance in society, you know, beyond just legal emancipation of the ability to vote and so on, but to be socially accepted, to not be persecuted socially. So emancipation comes in very different forms and different concepts and understandings. Now, we can then transition to how is it that the Jews have been treated differently in the past through all of these anti-Semitic movements. And that's the, that's the transition we're going to take here now. But to do that, we again, we have to rewind back to some more medieval anti-Semitism. Now, in this traditional anti-Semitism, 
we're talking about the traditional anti-Semitism of biblical anti-Semitism, of the Jews killed Jesus and the blood libels of the Jews are sacrificing uh, Christian babies to make their latka and so on. These traditional anti-Semitism of the medieval anti-Semitism, comparing Jews to the devil uh, and, and witches and so on, that is now evolving. Those, that language is not disappearing. It's still being used during this time period of the Enlightenment. But the group is now kind of being evolved into this romantic movement. This romantic movement, and specifically happening mostly within the, peri- or the, the territory that used to be the Holy Roman Empire, or what you and I know today as Germany, this romantic movement is hearkening back to the Middle Ages themselves. Not just, you know, hearkening back to medieval anti-Semitism, but like a medieval culture of, of knights and chivalry. Now, obviously, this romantic movement is forgetting about and glossing over all of the negatives, you know, all of the crap and disease-infested cities and terrible hygiene and so on of the Middle Ages. But, you know, people were happy. You know, it was kind of the make Germany great again sort of movement. Now, with that, they viewed not just that, you know, people knew, not just that, you know, the knights and the chivalry and so on, but this concept that people knew their place, that people knew where they were in society. And because of that, my role was much more stable. And we're in a time of instability. We're in a time of of the Industrial Revolution, of jobs changing, of high unemployment. So viewing a time period where your life seemed more stable, whether it was good for everybody or not, it's one of the reasons why we have that, that pull of nostalgia during very difficult times. Now, we also see this in a class antagonism. As this keeps developing further in the Industrial Revolution, we can kind of pull in the Marxist discussion. And that the Jews are seen as, again, almost a separate class, that the Jews are the bourgeoisie class, the upper class, the ones who are alienating the rest of us and punishing the rest of us. So you see the uh, the um, certain movements actually become anti-communist movements, which is ironic because communists began as anti-Jewish movements. Karl Marx himself was a, a fervent anti-Semite uh, that argued that the Jews were responsible for capitalism. But it's really during this time period when the radical right and the conservative side begins to develop more anti-Semitism and more anti-Semitic views that the Marxist and left side of the political spectrum begin to revert away from anti-Semitism, actually embracing the Jews. You know, and, and the reason that the left begins to do that is to provide a, uh, a counter to the narrative on the right. Um, So early on, Marxism and communism and its first development was the anti-Semitic movement, but during and throughout the Industrial Revolution of the 1850s to the early 1900s, that's when we see it actually flip. And and the communists and the leftists give up anti-Semitism really as a reaction to the rising anti-Semitism on the right. But then we also get into the social Darwinist movement. So beyond class antagonism, where, you know, the Jews are either, either you're blaming them for being on the top or you're blaming them for being on the bottom, social Darwinism argues that the Jews are a separate group physically, genetically, that they're inferior genetically. And so kind of continuing all the way back from traditional anti-Semitism in the Middle Ages, moving through the Romantic movement, the, the purpose here is to see that 
whatever the kind of current mindset, the current understanding of social groupings are, the Jews keep getting thrown on the bottom. That the the reason why we have to hate the Jews changes from time period to time period, adding new things in, kind of picking and choosing the stereotypes that we prefer to put the Jews in a negative light. So when we look at our con- our concepts of this anger against the Jews, or even the concept of the word anti-Semite, it's all about language. It's all about how are we describing these groups and helping them fit into our context using our current language. The word Semite and anti-Semite, those words themselves have to do with language. Uh, The word Semite was used to describe a group of people, uh, a group that can speak multiple languages, is a Semite. Uh, And when you look at the Jews, Jews always are able to speak multiple languages. And the reason for that is they practice their religion in one language, but they have adopted the languages of the areas that they have moved to. So they practice their religion, they read their Torah uh, and so on in, in Hebrew or in Yiddish. But in interacting in society, you know, if they live in America, they speak English. If they live in Germany, they speak German. If they live in France, they speak French. So Jews tended to be a group that spoke multiple languages, where Aryans, um, under the, the, from the term that was first coined by Count Arthur Joseph de Gobineau from Germany, uh, are, are people who speak one language, who have a, has, as Arthur argued, a very consistent culture. Now, Arthur goes so far as to argue also a, a look, you know, tall, blonde, blue-eyed, but, but mostly what he is arguing is a singular cultural be- uh, culture-bearing people. Where Semites, because they speak different languages, because they share different cultures, they always carry their Jewish culture wherever they go and seem to adopt parts of the culture they're in, uh, they're seen as kind of polluting, as not being consistent, where you know, Germans or pure Aryans have one consistent culture. Now, there's no, there's no logical argument that you have to have one culture, or there's no, it's not even really a logical argument that a Jewish German culture is actually different than a Christian German culture. They're both kind of the same things. It's just you focus on two different areas in your life when it comes to religion and other pieces of culture. But that doesn't mean that the German culture is more consistent, that the Christian German culture is more consistent than a Jewish German culture. A Jewish German culture is consistent. It's just consistently different. Uh, I hope that's making sense and I'm not just talking in circles. But when we see the use of this language, we can also see how the language has evolved, uh, not just in how we classify people, whether you're Semite or Aryan, Semite, anti-Semite. We can see the evolution of language being used in the descriptions. You know, we've mentioned before in this class how Jews were described as dogs, as animals, um, as, as less than human. And we talked about the dehumanizing aspect of that, that it helps the perpetrator of the atrocities to actually attack them when they, when they see these people as being subhuman. Well, this language in especially this new time period of, you know, germ theory and scientific advancements and uh, so much else going on during the Industrial Revolution, we start to see other words being used beyond, you know, dog and animal And now we're getting into describing them as parasite or bacteria, meaning that we're associating them with something even sub 
animal. And, and when you describe somebody as a dog, a, a dog can at least be loyal. It can serve a purpose. When we think of a parasite or a bacteria or a disease, we think of something that just latches on to another organism and, and sucks out of them, that, that doesn't provide anything. That is, this organism, its only goal is to absorb and steal, that they're good for nothing other than taking and destroying what we have. So again, we're, we're using language to even further demonize a group of people. Language is a powerful, powerful tool. We all know how when we misspeak, how dangerously angry we can make somebody because they misinterpreted what we said. And no matter what meaning we meant to put behind words, words themselves carry meaning and different meanings to different people. You know, it's kind of like the concept of, you know, my color blue might be a different color blue for you. Words are the same way. Just because I'm speaking words to you and you're listening to them right now doesn't mean that you're actually interpreting them the same way that I think you are when I'm sitting here talking at my computer right now. Uh, so language is very, very important, especially when you become purposeful and explicit in your language, like we are seeing with the descriptions of the Jews uh, as it evolves. You know, that, that language of going from calling them dogs and animals to parasites and bacteria. We see more and more uh, language really being used to the point of whole stories. You know, the concept, we start to see more conspiracy theories about the Jews be developed during this time. And, and one of the reasons is that we now have access to mass printing and the printing press. The fact that we can print multiple copies of information means we can print also multiple copies of misinformation. The same way that we here in 2020 are worried about in our election season and all of the misinformation that can be spouted on social media, things that can be stated and repeated over and over again without ever being fact-checked. Well, that was a major problem with the printing press. Yes, it might not have been able to reach as many people. Yes, it might not have been able to uh, have as big of an impact as what we think of today with the internet, but it had a massive effect, especially compared to non-writing, not having any writing or not having any printing press. Uh, so some of the things that we begin to see printed, one, one prime example is a, uh, a fake book that is known as the Protocols of the Elders of Zion. This is a big book made to look like uh, the, the, the meeting notes of a bunch of Jews getting together to create this conspiracy to control the world and how they're going to infiltrate all the governments of the world and, and then infiltrate all of the economies and then bring it all collapsing down so that the Jews can control the world. That this was supposed to be the the minute by minute meeting notes of everything the Jews talked about in this meeting to dominate the world, and that it was, you know, obtained by a, a Russian spy and then printed and, and disseminated around the world. Well, obviously, this entire thing turned out to be completely fake. But there were a lot of people at this time who jumped on these stories, who jumped on this book, and used it as a form of like pseudo proof and pseudo evidence to prove whatever despicable things about this group of people, the Jews, that they wanted to. Now, this book and the language that is being involved helps push into politics too. And the same way that we talked back in the beginning of this podcast about emancipation and that there's different forms of emancipation, social, legal, and political. Well, you see that almost in the opposite when it comes to oppression. The fact that anti-Semitism 
is you know the antithesis of Jewish emancipation. When you see social anti-Semitism, meaning that you know, groups, individuals are obviously anti-Semitic, openly anti-Semitic, possibly even openly racist, but they're not, you know, it, it's not your elected leaders. It's, it's kind of your weird tinfoil hat guy that everybody avoids in town. That's one thing. But what we start to see happening is we start to see our politicians using the language of anti-Semites and other racists uh, within Europe, and not just Europe, but really throughout the West. There are exam- many examples uh, here in the United States, too, that I could go down through with you. But in Germany specifically, um, we point to the very first you know, legal uh, or political example of anti-Semitism was in 1887 when the first open anti-Semite was elected to the German Reichstag. Now, this is a huge monumental move. It's not as though this is the first time we ever see anti-Semitism in German history, not even anti-Semitism in German history right around this time. But now that an individual has been elected, that means enough anti-Semites support the open anti-Semitic message of that person, meaning that he, that person was now legitimizing the mindsets even of their constituents. Now, that person is finally saying what we all knew, but we couldn't say in public. And that can be very powerful. Uh, it, it can further the social uh, pushback against the Jews. You know, that, now that there is a political justification, there can be that social justification. Uh, you can kind of think back to when Donald Trump um, announced his political candidacy with the, with the phrase, and I quote, the, the Mexicans coming across the border are drug dealers and rapists. And those that statement that played a role in our society, and we did see an increase um, in persecutions and attacks against um, specifically Hispanic minority groups here in the United States, because a political leader, a person in society who people generally look up to, said it and didn't get any kind of punishment for it uh, and, and, and was still accepted by society. So it must be okay now to state the fact that your political leaders are willing to make those kinds of statements makes it more socially acceptable then. This is really, though, this 1887, when I mentioned earlier that the communists and the socialists really flipped and became the anti-anti-Semites, uh, that is within this election. You know, this is when the socialists and social democrats really became the anti-anti-Semites. Um, because now in 1887, when, when the, a conservative is the first person to be elected under this banner of anti-Semitism, uh, then the socialists and those on the left, again, needed to, div- needed to make uh, it very clear the differences between the two. So with all of these things that we've talked about, all of these evolutions, um, again, from, from the Middle Ages on, there's been very different reactions from the Jewish community too. The same way that we see different reactions across Europe and across religious groups and political groups and so on um, of how they're going to mistreat Jews, we see different reactions from different Jewish groups of when they are treated that way as well. And we start to see groups evolving and emerging, um, such as the Zionist movement and this push to reclaim the territory of Palestine. You know, Some Jews view everything that was happening to them as fine. Nobody wants us. The only real way for us to live is to live in our own society somewhere with our own rules and be separated from everybody else. That's the concept of Zionism, where they were going to reclaim the land of Israel and take over what was at that point in time the territory of Palestine. 
uh, and they were going to create their own country, their own territory where Jews could live with just other Jews and controlled by Jews. You know, there's other groups such as the Bund movement. The Bund movement was a movement to try to work with politicians, that whether the politicians were anti-Semitic or not, that, you know, we as Jews are still in this society. We deserve to be a part of this society. We deserve to have a voice in this society. Then there's other anti-Zionist movements, uh, you know, all the way on the far extreme of we need to push back, violently push back against these anti-Semites, that we're not going to go somewhere and live in our own country, that we're, we're also not going to sit here and put up with this, that we need to demand equality, full, complete political and social equality. So there's not just one reaction to, uh, from the Jewish community to all of this pushback and, and to all this you know, evolution of, of terror against them. Um, the Jews had very different uh, reactions, you know, all the way from we're going to go create our own civilization to screw this civilization, it needs to be fixed. That's a very wide-ranging spectrum, and that's why it's not a clear, cut, dry, you know, oh, why didn't the Jews do this when Hitler did this? There are so many different views because there's very different life experiences before these events happen to the Jews as well. All right, so a lot of what we've talked about, both in chapter one and chapter two, are cultural experiences. We're trying to get the mindset, the culture of the Jews and the non-Jews within Europe and where things are coming from. So I hope this really was to help kind of bring us up to speed of the culture of both Jews and non-Jews in Europe right up to the time period of the World Wars. World War I is going to change everything, but we can't understand that change if we didn't understand the way it was before the change. And I was trying to, with these two, with this unit and these two chapters, to show you our base before this monumental change of the world wars are going to come around. Um, so starting with this next unit, we're going to begin to look at the World War I and how does World War I play a role in the mindset of non-Jews and Jews themselves as, um, as well as then after World War I, how is it that the Jews suddenly become this target and the target that we know them of today? Okay, so that's all that I have for you today. Uh, again, your CAST Systems Project is due on October 2nd. That is the end of this week. That's our first project. That will wrap up Unit 1 for us. So starting next week, we are going to jump into Chapter 3, uh, which is introducing World War I and what is known as Weimar Germany, which we'll talk more about those. Um, so keep a lookout next week for a new note packet, uh, as well as a chapter three assignment. Uh, other than that, if you guys have any questions, always please reach out to me. Um, but until then, keep your name out of the paper, except for doing good deeds. <laughs>